Who's gonna kill you? Oh, yeah. So, are you already on the webinar? Yeah. Doing the practice? No, I, I'm, I'm in. So, I'll have to edit because it's recording? Yeah. I, we'll just trim it. Uh, yeah, I think it should be fine. I took out <laughs> Stellar, how are you? Yeah, no, it's totally fine. Oh, uh, no.
behind the scenes, y'all. BTS. <laughs> so I'm muting you for now. <laughs> I got an Oracle registration this morning. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it could be either. Uh, <laughs> let's see. What do you say? <laughs> right? Um, Colin.pons at oracle.com. Oh, yes.
Everyone will be starting in about two minutes, two minutes. All right, we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Dave. I work on the marketing team here at Telesign. I'm joined on the call with Tara, also on the marketing team, and today's speaker, Stacy Stubblefield. Stacy is uh, our chief innovation officer here at Telesign, also a co-founder. And Telesign, or Stacy's primary function at Telesign is to drive innovation, uh, move us forward, uh, and she does this uh, from. Los Angeles, but also travels the world speaking on behalf of Telesign at various conferences and engagements. So today, Stacy will be giving a speech on uh, kind of using data solutions to, to know your global users and drive engagement uh, that also turns into dollars for your business. So without further ado, I am pleased to introduce Ms. Stacy Stubblefield. All right, thank you so much, Dave, for that very energetic uh, introduction. Really appreciate it. Um, anyway, thank you all for joining our webinar here today, uh, which is called Know Your Global Users, How to Integrate Data Intelligence APIs to Enhance Identity and Fuel Growth. And so we'll be talking through some of the types of data that you can use um, that is coming primarily from mobile carriers around the world to better understand your users. So without, uh, without taking any more time, let's go ahead and get started. All right, first of all, why should we listen to you? That's a good question. So I thought that we would give a little bit of a background on who Telesign is, um, who we work with, and what we do. So Telesign was actually started back in 2005. Uh, what is that, 14, over 14 years ago. And it has been a long ride. Um, there have been a lot of changes since the first day that we were founded. 
Um, our very first product actually was a voice-based one-time passcode. So sending one-time passcodes via a voice message to users around the world. Um, and actually the reason that we were voice-based at the beginning was because nobody used SMS way back then, believe it or not. So again, there have been quite a few changes since then. Um, we work with something like 21 out of the top 25 global web properties now. Um, so a bunch of big brands are using our service to keep their users safe around the world. Um, and let's just dive in to a little bit more, um, a little bit more of the numbers around our company. We have over 310 employees worldwide, five global offices. We uh, transact more than 12 billion um, transactions per year, and that includes both one-time passcodes and uh, data transactions, so subscriber data information. We do uh, around a little over $200 million in revenue annually. We raised $79 million over the last uh, 14 years and had 17 pa patents granted. Um, and then finally, back in 2017, we were acquired by Bix. Um, I know what you're thinking. Why would a PIN company acquire a two-factor authentication company? So it's actually a different Bix. This is a global telecom um, that interconnects a bunch of different telecoms around the world. Um, they have uh, direct connections to over 700 mobile network operators um, and a bunch of great relationships with those carriers. So we are relying on them largely now for our um, back-end uh, um, you know, SMS and voice systems, and we're also working with them and their carrier partners very closely for sourcing subscriber data, which is what we're going to be talking about. Okay, so let's get into how websites see their users. When a new user comes onto a website um, or an app, the website or the app has a very specific perspective about that new user. Um, <laughs> this is a, a very old, um, uh, I'll just call it a, a meme, a very old meme that has existed um, on the internet for many, many years. And basically, it's true. On the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. And that remains true, even though this was actually, I think this particular thing came out in the 90s, that remains largely true to this day. Um, and it makes it extremely easy for bad actors around the world to do various types of fraud. I'm sure you guys have all seen um, all of the different types of exploits, um, data breaches, and various other you know, fraudulent types of events that have been happening lately. They actually get a lot of media exposure these days, um, and it is just building on a regular basis. So. Uh, and, and a large part of that is because it's relatively easy to stay anonymous on the internet. So how do fraudsters stay anonymous? Well, it's actually much easier than uh, the standard, you know, your standard person off the street might think. There are a lot of tools that people can use to remain anonymous and do their bad deeds without getting caught. So if you think about what most uh, websites and apps are, um, what their goals are. In many cases, the goal is to get a user onboarded as quickly as possible or to get a user to check out as quickly as possible. Typically, you're just trying to reduce friction um, 
as much as you possibly can so that the user doesn't stop whatever they're doing. They don't decide not to create an account. They don't decide not to check out. And because of that, uh, you know, there's a there's a very healthy tension typically between the the marketing side of each business and the fraud prevention side of businesses as well. So, in many cases, uh, websites and apps are gathering as little information about their users as possible to create an account. So, in many cases, it's just a name, an email address. Um, they'll grab an IP, uh, sometimes a device ID or fingerprints. Unfortunately, most of this information is pretty easy to manipulate, um, and let's let's get into how that's done. So, creating a fake name, and bear in mind, it's not always just about creating a fake name. You can also steal an identity, use someone else's identity um, in that way. So. The point is just knowing the name of the person that is uh, creating an account on your website or app is very, very difficult, whether they've stolen an identity or whether they've created a fake name. And so creating a fake name obviously is trivially easy, very, very easy to do. You can come up with one in your head. If you get tired and bored of doing that on your own, you can uh, use a website like fakenamegenerator.com to generate hundreds or thousands of fake names, and not just names, addresses as well, birthdays, um, zodiac signs, whatever you need, <laughs> in, uh, you know, automatically and very, very quickly. And you can even choose what uh, gender should be generated, the name set, the country of the address. Um, so they let you get pretty specific. Uh, so again, relying on the name and potentially the address provided by the user is, is not really a good idea. Fake emails, also very easy to generate or potentially buy. Um, there are several websites online, several. There's actually dozens if not hundreds of websites online that let you create a fake uh, email address immediately. So you just show up at the website, you push a button that says, I want a fake email address. It's very, very um, easy and completely free. Any email that, get, that gets sent to that email address then automatically appears in the inbox that is shown there. So you can use that to register for an account on any website that requires email verification. Very easy, uh, completely free, throwaway email address. If that doesn't work for you, you can also buy email addresses. And so there's a very huge business out there of people who create email addresses. Um, in some cases, they're brand new. In some cases, they age them. You can actually see here, uh, we found a website where they're selling <clears throat> Gmail accounts from 2008, $180 for 100. So they're not cheap, but they're not that expensive, depending on what you, uh, how much, <laughs> how much uh, revenue you plan to generate from your fraud. It can definitely be worth it if you need an aged uh, Gmail account. And as you can see, they're readily available. So buying uh, or creating a fake email account is pretty easy. Spoofing an IP address, I think most people are probably familiar with this. Um, it's, again, dozens if not hundreds of sites online where you can go and buy an IP address. Um, they're typically very inexpensive. You can select, um, in many cases, down to the city level where you want to geolocate that IP address. Um, if if you don't need to get quite that specific and you're on a budget, you can also use a website plugin like Ola that basically lets you tunnel through other people's IP addresses um, to do your 
bad deeds. <laughs> so again, pretty inexpensive, if not free, very easy to do. The lay, a lay person can, can do this pretty, pretty easily. And then device ID and fingerprint, this one's a little bit more difficult in many cases, but again, still very doable. There are um, various programs that have been written by fraudsters out there to help you um, rotate through cookie, or excuse me, rotate through um, OS attributes, browser attributes, and um, manipulate your cookies so that you look like a brand new user, or I've even seen cases where you can, um, <clears throat> excuse me, where you can uh, impersonate another user. So again, not nearly as easy to do. And there, this on the right side of the screen, you can see a screenshot that we pulled of somebody giving their process of how they uh, manipulate device ID. Pretty simple. It depends on the website that you're trying to defraud as to how, you know, how deeply they're looking into device ID, how much effort they're putting into it. But um, definitely possible to get around it. So who are you really dealing with online? It is very difficult to know. Is this a legitimate user? Are they who they say they are? Are you ever going to be able to reach them again at the email address that they've provided? And even potentially how valuable is this user to your website? Every online business struggles with these questions. This is not unique um, to you if you're having these problems. It's very, very common. So that is why we are uh, helping to solve this problem. Now, on the other hand, completely different perspective is had by mobile network operators, um, also known as carriers, around the world. So let's dig into what type of information they have about their users and why they have that information and how ultimately how it can be helpful to your business. So due to the nature of their business, Carriers have a lot of information, a lot of verified information that is difficult, if not impossible, to manipulate about each of their subscribers. So they have identity and billing info, accounts and payment information, social graph information, and then just various other types of information. So let's dig into each one. <clears throat> identity and billing information. A lot of people don't realize this, but as of December 2018, 150 governments around the world require that carriers collect some proof of identity before registering a new SIM card for a subscriber. Now, it varies by country what type of identity is, is you know, uh, considered um, to meet the requirements. So it's not, uh, it, and it's not always foolproof anyway. I've heard stories of people bringing in fake IDs to get a SIM card or someone going in with their... I, their real ID and buying 20 SIM cards and selling them on the black market. So of course there are ways to get around this. <clears throat> However, just the fact that 150 governments worldwide require people to show some form of ID in order to get a SIM card makes it much, much more difficult to, um, and more costly, frankly, to use uh, a, a mobile number for any type of fraud. Um, in addition, if you're signing up for a contract account, otherwise known as a postpaid account, in most cases, if possibly in all cases, the carrier will do some form of credit check on you to make sure that you are likely going to pay your bill. So in this case, they'll collect your name and address, your date of birth, 
typically your national ID, whether that's a social security number or a matricula number or some other type of number, depending on which country you're in. And then they'll run that against um, a credit check and, uh, and determine whether you're credit worthy enough to extend a, a mobile line to. Um, but if you think about what that means, that means that the carrier not only has an piece of identification associated with your account, but they've also run a full credit check on you. They really, they know you quite well, who you are and how well you pay your bills at that point. And that's just on sign up. <clears throat> Let's get into uh, the account and payment information that they have about you. So. Of course, they have the date that you signed up, but they also know information um, that can be super useful, like the type of plan that you have. Did you sign up for the $10 a month plan or did you sign up for the $60 a month plan? Is it a family, uh, is it a family plan where there's four different lines? Is it a business plan? What type of plan is it? And what type of phone did you get? Did you get uh, an Apple, uh, you know, the newest iPhone, or did you get, like me, a Motorola? Yes, people question that decision all the time. <laughs> Actually, it's a great phone, but I'm sure somewhere I'm being judged based on this. Um, the number of lines that you have, the monthly amount that you spend, um, do you usually go over your allotted allowance? Do you usually stay way, way under it? Do you pay your bills on time? It's a lot of information that the carrier has about your, um, basically about your behavior. Uh, as it relates to your phone line. Social graph info as well. Now, I've never actually heard a carrier refer to the information that they have as social graph information, but that really is what it is um, when you think about how they can see how you use your phone and who you're contacting on a regular basis and who's contacting you. And so, again, the types of information they have is who you call, when you call them, do you call them at 2 p.m. or you call them at 9 p.m., 6 a.m.? When are you really active on your mobile phone? How often do you call this person? Do you call them every day or once a year? It makes a huge difference as to how strongly you're connected to them. How long do you talk to them? Who calls you back? Who do you message and who messages you back? Um, all of that type of information when, um, you know, put together can provide a really strong picture of who you're connected to, um, you know, strongly and who you have a weak connection to, who you have no connection to. So it can be pretty interesting information. <clears throat> and then finally, there's various other types of information that the, that your carrier has access to. So for example, um, whenever you make a call or send a message, that message or call uh, pings off of the in theory, the nearest base station. And that information can be used to determine where you are at any given moment. So, uh, so your carrier does essentially know your location. Um, they know how long you stay in a particular location, um, when you travel uh, to other cities or other countries, um, how much data you're using on your data plan. Um, in some cases, the apps that you're using, the websites you're visiting, there's just a lot 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 of information that is there and available for the carriers um, to see and use about your behavior on your mobile phone. So as you've probably surmised at this point that data can be incredibly powerful and so let's just look 
for a second, let's just take a, a very a broad overview of how that data has been useful so far, just on an aggregated level. Before we get into um, really specific data points, I think it makes sense just to really understand the power of this data and the types of ways that people are starting to use it for um, various different reasons. It's actually super interesting, at least if you're, if you're a nerd like me, it's pretty interesting. Okay, so tracking infectious disease movement. This one was pretty cool. So um, the movement of people and malaria in Namibia was um, tracked by this particular group of researchers. Uh, what they wanted to do was see whether they could predict how uh, malaria was moving around Namibia based on the movement of people um, or I should say of people's mobile phones. And so what they did is they looked at 12 months of CDR data, uh, otherwise known as call detail records, um, which uh, contains all of the information about your various transactions, calls and messages and whatnot. Um, and they analyzed that CDR data uh, from the carrier in Namibia that has a 90% market share. So they're hitting a large portion of the Namib Namibian population. And they tracked the movements around uh, various different regions. So they could see that there were certain cities and towns where people were um, traveling often. They could see how strong the connections between these different towns in Namibia were. So how many people are going back and forth between them, how often they go back and forth between them, and that type of information. And then they also tracked um, uh, malaria um, in Namibia. So they were trying to see where um, malaria had, for lack of a better term, a net outflow. So people in that region were taking malaria to other regions where there was a net inflow. So people were coming from other regions and bringing uh, malaria in, and then where it was kind of evenly dispersed in inflow and outflow. And by, doing, by, by looking at this, they could see that there was a very strong correlation between the movements, um, as you would guess, um, between the movements of cell phones, so mobile phones moving in and out of particular cities, um, with the flow of malaria in and out of those cities. And so this type of information can be used in the future just mainly to understand how people are flowing around a particular country and determine where um, disease outbreaks are likely to strike and then where they are likely to travel too quickly. And so these researchers are predicting that they will be able to use this to reduce the number of cases transmitted between regions by designing targeted interventions in particular places. So pretty cool. Um, yeah, so let's go ahead and move on to the next one. Again, pretty cool. I'll try to go through these fairly quickly, but uh, this particular group of researchers wanted to know if they could predict mass layoffs in certain areas or by certain companies. So what they did was they found a manufacturing plant that had recently gone out of business. And then they looked again at the CDR data from a mobile carrier in that region. Um, if you look on the right side of this, you can see uh, a few different graphs. The first graph shows um, the aggregate call volume before and after closing in the area around the particular uh, manufacturing plant that was shut down and the red line is the closing dates of the plants and you can see that the aggregate call, aggregate call volume, excuse me, dropped significantly on the day that the plant was closed and it stayed significantly lower. 
Um, on the next graph, you can see a presence of a call, of any call, by a top 300 user um, before and after closing. So each of those uh, colored lines represents one user, um, and whether the line exists or not represents whether that user made a call that day. So you can see on the red marked um, date, which was the closing date, a bunch of, um, there was just basically a, a large stop in making calls uh, around that day. And then the fraction of calls made near the plant before and after closing is the final graph there. Um, and you can see on the closing date, the fraction of calls made by users in that area um, drops a very, very large amount. And so um, how can this data be used? It's actually, again, pretty interesting. You can use this data to see uh, when uh, companies in a particular area are shutting down, um, which can be used to predict all kinds of things like unemployment rates, um, mass layoffs, and then even identifying affected individuals um, uh, potentially. So again, pretty powerful information. And then last but not least, poverty maps in Bangladesh. Um, th these researchers looked at uh, all kinds of information, basic phone usage, top-up patterns um, of prepaid phones, the social network that we were talking about before, um, again, user mobility, so how much these users moved between places, and then overall handset usage. So all of this type of information that you can get from CDR records um, from carriers was used to estimate uh, the poverty maps in um, Bangladesh. So the wealth index, the progress out of poverty, and household income. And they found that the information they were able to gather with CDR records was roughly matched the information that they previously could only gather via census records and via manual um, polling information, which is, of course, very expensive. And so, and this is also much more specific. And so, they have found that this is a great way to um, determine this type of information in countries around the world. So, that is an overview of using the data in aggregates. Let's talk about using subscriber data for online identity, which is what most of you have probably joined this webinar to learn. Okay, so what can you do with data intelligence APIs? Just as a very quick overview, you can do things like build trusted identities, reduce fraud, and increase conversion rates. And we're gonna go through um, each of those as we go through the various data points that are available from carriers. And so, before we jump into that, one last thing that I wanted to note is that phone verification is the underpinning of all of this. So making sure that phone numbers that are associated with your users have been verified is uh, an extremely uh, important piece of this puzzle. Um, we've had uh, clients who wanted to use phone numbers that were provided by their users that had never been verified. Um, it's a very, uh, it's very tricky because in those cases you can't be 100% sure that the user has given you their real information. And so any information that you tie to it at that point is, um, you know, it's unclear whether the data that you're tying to it is actually associated with that user. So uh, we very strongly recommend that you tie a phone number, um, a verified phone number to each of your users' accounts um, so that you have a piece of data that you can, or a verified piece of data, the phone number, that you can use to then pull additional information about that user. So, what can you actually pull about the user based on the phone number? Well, let's jump in. So, 
phone ID was actually, it's actually an API that Telesign offers. It was the very first data intelligence API that we offered. Um, so this product was born way back in 2006, I believe, 2006, 2007, something like that. And the reason that we created, well, what is it? Let me tell you what it is first. So uh, phone ID provides back uh, basic information about a phone number. You feed in a phone number and we provide back um, the type of phone that the, uh, the type of phone associated with the phone number. So whether it's a mobile phone, a landline phone, a VoIP phone, various different types of phone, we provide that information back to you. We also provide um, basic location information um, and then number formatting information. So if the user has entered their phone number in a way that has um, that needs to be modified for one reason or another, we provide back the clean phone number. And so most of our clients use this information um, so that they know when one of their users is providing a VoIP number. Um, and then many clients reject those numbers or quarantine the number. And the reason for that is because VoIP numbers are extremely easy to obtain. In many cases, they're free and they're pretty much anonymous. So they're not very powerful um, when it comes to really understanding your user and making sure that you have a good user um, behind that account. And you can see um, in the screenshot here, this is a screenshot of the Burner app. Uh, I'm not sure how many of you guys have heard of it, but it's an app that you can download, very easy to use. If you would like a, uh, a phone number, you can get one, uh, a working number um, created within just a couple of seconds, push a button, brand new phone number created for you. If anyone calls that phone number, it will ring to that app. And so, um, Again, it's, it's really important to be able to identify these numbers and know when a user is providing you with an anonymous VoIP number so that you can make good decisions as to how it's to handle that user. Activation date. So this information is coming in most cases directly from the carriers and um, the information that's being provided is the date phone number was activated on that carrier. And so why would that information be important to you? Well, um, typically a phone number that was activated yesterday is far more risky than a phone number that was activated 10 years ago that the user has um, you know, maintained an account for, for that 10 years. And so uh, many of our clients will use this, especially on any kind of high risk transaction to determine um, when was the phone number provided by the user created? If it was created within the last few weeks to a month, that can be pretty uh, risky um, to accept. If it was created many, many years ago, again, uh, typically a pretty reliable phone number. Deactivation dates. So these are, you know, those, these two go together, but they do have um, very different use cases. Um, again, this information is coming from the carriers and the information that you're getting is the date that the phone number was last given up. So when did this um, phone number last change hands essentially? When did a subscriber say, nope, I no longer want this phone number um, and then uh, basically get rid of it and it goes back to the carrier and then they can reassign it at some point in the future. Um, and the reason that this is uh, important um, is actually many, many reasons why this is important. So if you're tying a phone number to each of your user accounts, it's really important to make sure that that phone number 
that you have associated with that user remains associated with that user. If the user gives up that phone number, the chances that they're going to remember to come to your website or app and actually update their phone number are minimal. So you need a way to know that this phone number is no longer tied to this user. That way, if the, if the user needs to two-factor into your website, you can make sure that you have uh, their most updated uh, reachable phone number associated with, uh, with the account, with your account, versus their old number, which they no longer have access to. So that's typically how our users or how our clients use this information. Um, it's a simple subscription service where you can feed in your user's phone numbers and then we'll update you whenever a phone number gets deactivated and you can take action, typically contacting the user and asking them for a new phone number. Contract type. So this is uh, what we talked about a little bit earlier, the types of information that carriers have available about their subscribers. One of them is, of course, the type of contract, prepaid or postpaid. And I should also mention here that we also have whether it's an individual line um, or a business line, and then also whether the um, phone number is the primary phone number on the account or whether it is one of the secondary you know, family lines. Um, Again, why would you want to check this information? It can be helpful, especially in the case of a user that's already exhibiting some kind of risky behavior, um, to check and see whether they've provided you with a prepaid number or a contract number. Uh, prepaid numbers are much, much easier to obtain, especially on certain carriers, um, and can be used for various nefarious purposes. Um, so we recommend checking. Again, they're easier to obtain because uh, no credit check is done. So uh, it's much easier to get away with uh, getting a SIM card uh, with the prepaid line and using it for some you know, bad purpose than it is to have a contract phone. And the great thing about this is if you have a user that is exhibiting some kind of risky behavior and you want to know, is this actually a good user um, and should I go ahead and let them through or is this a bad user? Should I put them through manual review? Should I, you know, put them through that annoyance of having to wait to either create an account or to check out on a website or whatever it happens to be? Um, if you check it out and you see that this is a contract phone, or if you check it out and you see that this is a prepaid phone, but it was actually activated three years ago, um, any of these signals that show you that this is actually a good user, even though they're exhibiting some risky signs of behavior, can help make sure that you let your good users through, you let them transact on your website without uh, putting them through the same hassle that a, a fraudulent user would have to go through. So all of that is very important. Um, SIM swap and last port dates. So some of you may have heard about the uh, various um, uh, uh, fraudulent acts that have been committed by taking over someone's phone number. And typically that's done either via a SIM swap or via a port, most likely via SIM swap. And how that works is fraudster will pretend to be a victim. So they'll, they'll target their victim. Um, say their victim is John Doe. They'll walk into or call up um, the mobile operator of their victim. So say John Doe uses T-Mobile. They'll walk into T-Mobile and they'll say, hey, I'm John Doe. Um, I lost my phone. I need to get a new phone and a new SIM card. Can you help me out? 
<clears throat> and then, you know, the customer service agents um, wanting to be as helpful as possible, typically help them get uh, their, their phone and their SIM card set up. Um, but at that point, they have essentially taken over John Doe's phone number. Um, and they are then able to get the, any, you know, voice calls and text messages sent to John Doe. So then they can break into John Doe's various accounts, assuming they have the username and password or, you know, basic information about the account. And so uh, we're providing this information back so that you can check before any kind of very risky transaction that's about to take place, maybe a money transfer, um, maybe some type of cryptocurrency transaction. You can actually check uh, before sending a one-time passcode to the phone to make sure that that SIM card associated with that phone number has not been changed anytime recently. Um, because if it has, again, it's a very, uh, it's a much higher risk transaction than a SIM card that hasn't been swapped for the past, you know, year or however long it's been. <clears throat> name and address. So again, carriers almost always have the name and address associated with the subscriber, which is uh, really great if you are the type of business that needs to know who you're transacting with. And so we've seen e-commerce companies find this very helpful to make sure that the name and address that's being provided is the same as the name and address on the phone. We've also seen this be helpful um, for banking and fintech types of companies who need to make sure that they know who that user is um, behind the phone number that's being provided. So in some cases, we can provide back the name and address associated with the phone number. In some cases, we can match the name and addresses provided by um, your user and let you know whether that name and address that they have provided matches the name and address um, that the phone carrier has associated with that phone number. So again, that can be super powerful in making sure that you understand who that user is behind the transaction. And then device information. So um, the make, model, and identifier, otherwise known as the IMEI, of the user's mobile device. Again, this can be pretty powerful in a few different ways. Some, um, some clients might find it interesting to know the make and model for various, um, you know, uh, outreach purposes. So just understanding whether they're contacting this user on an iPhone or whether it's some type of Android device. Um, other clients like to use this, this information to determine whether somebody is rotating SIM cards out of, out of a device. And so what happens is um, on many devices, it's not possible any longer to pull the IMEI associated with that device using the API provided by the OS. So Android, um, I think it was in Android 10 where they uh, placed a lot of restrictions on being able to access that information. Don't believe that information is accessible at all on iOS. And so again, that makes it really, really difficult to know if you're transacting with a legitimate user or transacting with someone that's just rotating through SIM cards in an effort to look like a brand new device. And so if you take um, the phone numbers that are provided to you, and run them against the carrier and see that the same IMEI is coming back for a bunch of the phone numbers, you'll know that the same device is being used, um, which again, can be difficult to tell just by using the information that's available coming from the OS. And rooted phones are also, again, it's easy to change that information. So it's really, it's not reliable when pulling it from the OS versus from the uh, carrier. 
And finally, last but not least, we have the SCORE um, API. And so the type of information that SCORE is currently providing back is how, um, what is the reputation of the phone number that's being provided by the user. And this information, the reputation score is determined by a bunch of information that we have that Telesign has and that BIX has um, on the back end. And so the type of information that we're looking at is of course some of the simple stuff like the phone type and the telecom carrier associated with the phone number. If it's a VoIP uh, phone, some basic contact details. We're also looking at whether um, there's any history of fraud based on our you know, other clients associated with this phone number. We look at uh, phone number traffic patterns and usage velocity to see whether they look like um, a normal user or whether they are following the patterns of a fraudulent user. And then various other pieces of inform information. We have a knowledge engineering team, for example, that goes out and does a bunch of research um, online to determine in various ways which phone numbers and prefixes and carriers are more or less risky than others. So there's a lot of knowledge that's going into um, this particular product to determine the reputation score of a phone number and our clients typically use this before sending a one-time passcode to determine how risky the user is and whether they should go ahead and let the user through or whether they should quarantine the user or block the user um, in some way. So um, I should say that right now we're providing back a reputation score to determine how risky the user is. Um, on our roadmap, we have providing back a reputation score to tell you how good the user is as well. Um, a lot of our clients would like to know uh, whether a user is following just extremely regular patterns um, versus knowing whether they have fraudulent patterns. And so that's a, another product in our pipeline. And then finally, last but not least, um, we have a case study on um, using carrier data. We have Radpad, which is, uh, which is an app that, similar to Airbnb, that lets you book, um, you know, book places to stay. Um, and they, of course, were having, you know, some challenges identifying who their users were, which can be very, for this type of business, is extremely important. Um, and so we were able to help them with our phone intelligence data, let them know, again, who are these customers that are signing up to use, uh, to use their app, um, and make sure that they are really legitimate, good users who weren't going to cause any problems in their ecosystem. So we were really happy with the results there. And that is all. So any questions, I would be happy to answer. All right, everyone, it is Dave back here. And I actually had a few questions that were sent in advance from some customers. So Stacy, uh, I'm gonna start with uh, this question regarding GDPR. I know it's um, kind of thrown the whole world through a, a whirlwind uh, the past year and a half or so, but uh, how does GDPR specifically affect what we can do with data? Uh, does it present any new challenges or opportunities? So, Yes and no. Um, really, GDPR, I mean, it's, it's, it's meant to keep uh, user data, you know, safe um, and as private as possible. And so we are fully GDPR compliant um, and all of, the, our, all of our vendors are GDPR client, uh, compliant as well, which is, of course, extremely important. 
Um, we also work with our clients to make sure that they understand how they can use this data, um, when it should be used, when it shouldn't be used, and how to handle it. Um, and so as long as all of the rules are followed, um, this data is fine to use. Um, even when it comes to GDPR. There are various rules and regulations around the world even beyond GDPR. And again, um, it, it varies by country uh, on those rules and regulations. And so we help our clients understand for each country what the requirements are. All right, yeah, I, I wanna get into kind of a, a real world example recently. You, you touched on SimSwap in your presentation, but it, it's been in the news a lot. In fact, uh, uh, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey was recently hacked in a SIM swap attack. So I just wanna know, would the TeleSign current SIM swap solution have prevented that? It's a great question. So from what I know about that, um, and I, I only read about it briefly, but from what I know about that, uh, that fraud was performed uh, using a SIM swap attack. And in that case, um, assuming that the fraudster did take over his account using SimSwap, we would have been able to help identify and stop that particular attack. And one last question I have for you, Stacey. Uh, a lot of people have been concerned about, about friction and, and churn recently. For, for those that are unaware, friction would be uh, when in a registration process, for whatever reason, a, a user opts out. Uh, this could happen also in uh, uh, online purchase, uh, card not present transactions. I wanna know, uh, are there steps that TeleSign has taken with their data solutions to uh, remove this um, and add to more conversions with the, the help of data? Yeah, definitely. Um, so a lot of what our data can be used for, besides just stopping fraud, is understanding when someone who looks risky actually is not risky. So sometimes, you know, something happens, people get a new computer or they travel to a new location or whatever it happens to be, and they look risky. And so a lot of websites and apps will put them through much more friction in that case. It'll be harder to check out, harder to log into a website, whatever it happens to be. And so a lot of this data can be used to actually identify when these risky looking users aren't risky, when it's actually the right user, um, when there are no other you know, signs that this is a, a bad user or we can tell pretty definitively that it's a good user based on this data, um, which can really help improve the experience of users that you know, for whatever reason look a little bit different than they normally do. All right, well, I wanna give a, a huge thank you to Stacey Stubblefield for giving us some of her time this morning. This was a very valuable presentation and uh, thanks everyone for joining and that will end this webinar. Cheers, have a great day everyone. Thank you so much. We'll be following up with a recorded version of this for anyone who wants to check it out. Thanks guys. Very good, on demand coming soon. Goodbye.